Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. This week on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Sarah Freeman Wolpert, Deputy Director of the Strategic Advocacy for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, FCNL. As FCNL's Deputy Director of Strategic Advocacy, Sarah is responsible for deepening and expanding the advocacy team's work, a network of hundreds of Quakers and Friends lobbying to build congressional champions for peace and justice. Since 2018, Sarah has trained and organized FCNL's grassroots network and has contributed to the broader base-building work of the strategic advocacy team. Sarah has trained hundreds of people to lobby, strengthening FCNL's intersectional approach to grassroots advocacy and mobilize new constituents to take action with FCNL. Sarah is a former correspondent and associate editor at wagingnonviolence.org, a people-powered news source examining grassroots struggles for peace and justice around the globe. She has also served as a board member for USIMO, an educational nonprofit in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Sarah holds a master's degree in human rights and democracy in Southeast Europe from the University of Sarajevo. She also holds a bachelor's degree in international affairs with a focus on conflict resolution from the George Washington University. A native of Pembroke, New Hampshire, Sarah was raised in the Concord Friends meeting. Good morning, Sarah, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to have you on this afternoon. I think it's very interesting, and I haven't had anybody in your line of work on this podcast, so we'll get into it. Um, But before we start talking about your advocacy work and and the space that you're in for for peace, tell us about yourself, and let's start with the first job you ever had. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much. It's great to be here. The first, I guess, kind of uh, real job I had was working at a Quaker Guest House and Social Justice Center, which was then called the William Penn House. And it's now called Friends Place on Capitol Hill. And I had been living abroad for several years, studying conflict and human rights and nonviolence. And then I decided after the 2016 election to pivot back to the United States and to look a little bit at different kinds of conflict and human rights issues happening in the United States from that lens. And so That was a space where I organized social justice programs for young people, looked at the connections between advocacy and community service and activism, and planned different kinds of hands-on kind of learning opportunities for school groups. Yeah. So going from studying and being a student and being abroad and this kind of work that you're interested in is very different from being an employee. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that transition. So you're you're working with the Quakers for the Quakers, and you are a Quaker. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And so it's very known for your interest in peace and and nonviolence, and yet people have conflict. That's just very normal, and people are at all different stages of their leadership development and skills and being able to be a manager. So, mm-hmm. what was it like your first job or this job as um, being an employee? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I've been very lucky in some ways to work at Quaker organizations where and other organizations where there's a real value on uh, relationships and on dialogue and on kind of conflict resolution and problem solving. But I will say, so from working at William Penn House, which was a very small, maybe five person office to now I work at the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which has I would say about 60 employees, and it's a big um, Quaker advocacy organization on Capitol Hill. 
different kinds of conflicts arise when you're in a really scrappy, small nonprofit and kind of trying to fly by the seat of your pants versus when you're in a larger institution, not to mention, I'm sure in the corporate world, which I haven't worked in, but um, I know that there's different kinds of, of conflicts there. And I think it's been healthy for me in my career over the past six or seven years to think about how I kind of navigate those different relationships at work and also how I keep some boundaries in my, you know, professional setting around what are, how I navigate different conflicts, how I show up and, and kind of where the, where the different opportunities are for me to try to resolve a conflict without taking too much onto myself um, to try to change the way another person operates in the, the workplace or something like that. That is very difficult, isn't it? Um, some of us are fixers. I'm a recovering fixer. I'm better at it some days than others. And uh, that, you know, that golden mean of building relationships and yet not taking on other people's way they are in the world and, and what they see and what they believe and what they think is maybe the right way to go or feel or think mm-hmm. and, and having those boundaries, you know, allowing people to to be who they are, even if it's is not our preferred way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, one of the things I like about where I work now, and in general, I think like kind of the Quaker approach that I was raised with is this idea of trying to seek the good in each person or seek that of God in each person, depending on how you see it. But I find that there are a number of ways I bring that into my work and as a professional. And then there are some places where I kind of just... Uh, need to, yeah, try to resolve something and, and move forward. But I know I, I've recently heard this quote by Abraham Lincoln in some of the bridge building work that we've done. And the quote is, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. And that's something I've enjoyed uh, thinking about in our advocacy work and and also just different disagreements that come up in the workplace. Oh, I love that so much. Because when we disagree, I mean, there are legitimate disagreements that people have on worldviews and how we ought to move forward, social issues, and how we ought to spend our money. And yet a lot of times the disagreements we encounter is because we've made a caricature of the other person. We've made them into a straw man. We have othered them. Mm-hmm. And when we allow ourselves to see people as whole, things become much more complicated. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things are cut and dry, but the ability to vilify somebody or to write them off as just a moral degenerate or whatever, the other, uh, it's almost impossible to do mm-hmm. when we vilify somebody, when we, when we um, think it, it's, it's difficult to uh, move forward in a relationship when we've done that, when we've othered them and we make them a villain. But the more we get to know somebody, even mm-hmm. if we still disagree, and maybe mm-hmm. we don't even like their sense of humor or how mm-hmm. they are in the world, it's much harder to write them off and yeah. say they are simply deplorable. They're simply moral degenerates. And I can't even talk to them. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think I think that that can happen in all areas of our life. And I think the the more that we can try to notice the times when we feel that way and like kind of bring that awareness to the situation, I think that that's really helpful. And I think we try to do that sort of with power, with people in elected office and people who hold certain kinds of power in federal government, like in our advocacy work. But I also think the same principles apply in, you know, professional relationships with individuals like 
the way that we approach a lot of this work around conflict and dialogue is through relationship building. And for me, a lot of that has to do with getting to know people and building trust. Even if, like you said, even if the idea is not that we're going to eventually agree even or like each other or whatnot, for me, um, there's always an important element of trying to better understand where the other person's coming from and what their perspective is. And if I can understand it, I can at least figure out a way forward, I guess. And um, that might look different in my personal life than in my professional life. So sometimes in your professional life, you have to find a way forward in a different way. Whereas if it was in your personal life, you might just lay something to rest and, and move, move on. But yeah. And both have the virtues. I mean, it is nice to be able to say, this just isn't working and I wish you well, or, or yeah. whatever the issue may be. And also sometimes it's good to be in that position where this is the way that it is and I have to make peace with it. And I have to find a different way. I think both mm-hmm. are good exercises as we try to humanize others mm-hmm. and ourself. I like what you said, the word notice. Mm-hmm. And you already mentioned um, seeing the good or the God in others. Mm-hmm. And we can get in our own way when we fail to notice what is in front of us, when we fail to notice the dignity and the worth of the other person, mm-hmm. even when they are causing us pain. Mm-hmm. Um, physically or psychologically, or or we really think that person is wrong. I think when we notice, we get in the habit of noticing that first, the hum- the humanity, mm-hmm. and then the beliefs or the actions come second. It, it's uh, I just love that word notice because so often we have myself uh, failed to to do that exercise. Mm-hmm. So how? How do you practically, when you're in Capitol Hill and you're talking to somebody who maybe has vastly different views and you think very harmful and destructive views, how do you keep that intact, that noticing? Yes, um, good question. I think this is one of the hardest things to do, especially depending on who you're talking to, um, depending on how harmful their stance or their words or their behavior can be to you personally or to other people you care about. Um, one of the things that I'll say, so as as the Friends Committee on National Legislation, as a Quaker lobby, a Quaker advocacy group, um, one of the things that we try to do is to engage in deep listening um, as almost like a a pathway to try to identify and pursue common ground in public policy. And um, I think that at least the way that we approach this, I think there's a lot of different ways to try to make change. And I think protests and vigils and mass demonstrations and all of those things have a really important role in making change. And I think advocacy has a role in making change. One of the ways that we come into this work and one of the things that I think is a real value of deep advocacy, relational advocacy work is that we take this approach of uh, trying to listen and kind of take that space, take that pause to to understand where the other person is coming from, whether or not that's a stakeholder in a different congressional district or on a specific issue, or more often when it's a congressional staff member or a member of Congress, usually it's a member of their staff, uh, trying to resist the urge to kind of jump into it and to make all of our arguments and give all of our fact sheets. And of course we've got that comes, you know, there's, there's a place for that, 
but um, to use more time than people are used to, to try to understand where the actual decision makers or where the congressional staff, where are they actually coming from? And then to try to see, is there some way that I can speak to the thing that they're really concerned about in a way that still kind of advances the, the cause that I'm advocating for? Or is there some way that I can probe a little bit deeper, ask some questions that will help me understand how I can move this forward a little bit more? And, you know, I've noticed that there's a lot of folks, I train people to do this kind of advocacy across the country with their own members of Congress. And I've noticed that there's sometimes a knee-jerk reaction, especially with people like us, you know, activists or people who really care about a cause or who are really passionate about something, there is a tendency to leap into those conversations with the assumption that the congressional staffer is not with you, is, is on the opposite side of the issue, or that they're strongly opposed to your issue, or that they they don't care because they're not responding to your email. And my impression is often this is not the case. Often this is someone who is incredibly overwhelmed. Their attention is being pulled in a thousand directions at any given time. And they're, they're trying to navigate so many things that if you approach them by saying, you know, you clearly don't care about this. You don't care about me because you haven't responded to my email. Then you're kind of shutting off the potential to cultivate more understanding there because that's not how they would see it at all. You know, they really see it as, um, I'm trying to make time for more things than I can fit into a day, try to figure out which war I can, you know, what, which of these incredibly important, incredibly serious things can I give my attention to every minute of the day? So so I find that that listening and trying to understand people can can help us figure out where we can move forward on policy change, too. I see so many parallels for our personal life and our life in our offices I like what you said, spend more time than usual listening. Mm -hmm. And so many times we tell ourselves a false narrative about why the other person is harming me or why the other person is acting in this, what I perceive to be a negative manner. And many times we get the story wrong because we are very sensitive to how we are being affected by other people's actions and usually not as quite as aware of how we are maybe negatively impacting others. And to take that pause, that sort of that cure and get curious, mm -hmm. what is really going on here? I've mm -hmm. got my story. I might be right. I might be wrong. But how about I ask that person or I investigate or I think about building that relationship? Because if we really are interested in change, we can't treat each other like little computers where we're just going back and forth with information bits. Mm -hmm. And the problem of those other computers, they don't have the right program or they don't have the right information. And if I just give them the right information, they'll, they'll change, right? Mm -hmm. But people aren't like that. Mm -hmm. we, we change in this organic way. We grow through being, being respected, right? Mm -hmm. And being cared for. We all want to feel like we are being authentically cared for. And if our goal is to first care about the other and then enter into, as you said, a dialogue, a dialogue really means I'm not just a talking point and talking at you, mm -hmm. but I am concerned with you as a human person first. And then the issues that come up, we can actually dialogue. So if you're looking for common ground, or if we're looking for moving the needle one way or the other, we have to start with figuring out, as you said, what are the real issues, the pain points for this individual at this time? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that the power of this approach is, is almost sort of once, once you get into this work, I think seems extremely intuitive that, you know, all different levels of our lives we're we're mostly just dealing with people, you know, and people are unique in many ways. And also people behave in patterns, I'd say, like there are different patterns you can see in different interactions and different ways that folks relate to a crisis or to a situation that's challenging. Um, and I think uh, figuring out how to align some of the things that you're concerned about some of your own, especially in a workplace, some of the the projects or the priorities that you really want to be moving forward, how to figure out what's important to the other people around me and how does that connect to this project? You know, again, I think we tend to maybe assume that people are strongly opposed to something too quickly, like that there are a lot of times where maybe the concern is just, did I do enough consultation? Is this going to demand more resources that we may not have? Is this going to um, stretch somebody's time too thin? And, and that person's going to really buckle under the pressure of, of all the different projects on their docket. And so I've tried to approach, you know, policymakers and coworkers and people in my personal life as, as people first and sort of centering the relationship and then going from there, knowing that, you know, we still have work that we want to move forward in this world and, and that 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 those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Sometimes we think, oh, I am not being um, genuine to my cause. I'm not pushing it forward if I'm not in a way always on mission. Mm. But what's underneath that mission is we're trying to build a world for who? For the people, right? Mm. And so the people, as you said, always have to be front and center. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, yeah. I met you at this NAFCOM convention and you were giving a presentation with one of your colleagues. It was called Speaking in Tongues. And I really it really resonated with me because I think so many times we are talking past each other. We might have the same value or very similar goals, but we use different language or we might prioritize things in a variety of ways. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by speaking in tongues? Yeah, this is really a project that one of my colleagues, Bobby Trice, developed as a way to kind of bring a Quaker lens, Quaker practices, um, and some Quaker thought into this space around having challenging conversations and trying to heal different political divides, different, you know, conversations that can keep us further apart. And so this is really tied to the idea that if we're uh, listening to people, not for what they might be saying directly, but for the sort of deeper meaning uh, behind their words and for their deeper intentions that we can try to kind of move forward in a way where we can find deeper common ground, see each other more truly and and bring kind of that Quaker lens into those challenging conversations and spaces. Um, and so, you know, really the idea of this is to ground yourself, kind of center yourself to engage in deep listening to try to understand what's important to the other person and how can that connect with the thing that is really important to me um, and how can we take some sort of action going forward in a way that honors the the concerns that both of us bring into the conversation. I like that a lot because it is it does call us into dialogue, into relationship, right? And with the people at work, you might say, but I don't want to be in a relationship with them. I want to go to work. I want to go home. And to that, I say, well... 
that's just not the way of it. You know, insofar as you work with people, you work with people. And if you want to have, if you want to flourish, if you want to get ahead, if you want to do good work and be on mission, that means investing in your relationships. I am not for talking about work as a family because I think that's very fraught. And I think it's many times inappropriate that people feel like they have to be roped in to talk about their personal lives, right? So, but it's not we're family or we don't care about each other. Mm. How do we, in a professional setting, invest in the people around us? Because I do think it's unprofessional and counterproductive to say, I don't, I can't stand any of my colleagues and I just, you know, I'm just doing what I can do to get by. That's a personally Mm -hmm. toxic way to think and, and to live. It just sounds like such a sad way to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I'm glad that you mentioned this idea about like work as a family, because I think that that I agree that there's, it's really important to have, to differentiate between like relationships in general and like personal and social relationships. I think that, you know, I've also encountered this, the idea that we need to have, you know, relationships with colleagues or with congressional staff or other stakeholders or whatnot, that that that's not the same thing as needing to socialize or go to happy hour or like tell each other about your weekend plans or, you know, people are able to determine where they draw their own boundaries, I'd say. And some people want to be more open in those ways than others. But I don't think that that's the same thing as all all forms of relationship. And I think approaching any kind of project or initiative that has any kind of human, you know, human thought component to it, not something maybe you just put into a a computer or something, although I'm sure that has the same, you know, it also has humans behind it. But um, any project that needs collaboration, that needs cooperation, that deals with people directly, um, or different ideas that we're trying to put into motion, I think to not approach it as relational is sort of doing a disservice to the the outcome that we want to see. And I think that you can have a workplace and a a profession that's deeply relational and also has strong boundaries in terms of your own work-life balance, I should say. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it takes some work to figure that out. And it doesn't mean that you're going to feel the same level of camaraderie or comfort with the people at work. Some personalities may rub you the wrong way. And I really think we should embrace that, recognize and celebrate the diversity and realize, hey, I'm glad you like that. And you can do that. And I can do me and not try to remake the world in our own image. I, I really... I've been thinking a lot, and I'm sure po- people who listen to this podcast hear me talk about this a lot, but you know, what does it really ma- mean to live and let live? Like, What mm-hmm. are your real non-negotiables and are those deep-seated values uh, that in where your boundaries are or how you're going to allow people to treat you and not treat you? But beyond that, how can you really embrace the rich diversity of ways in which people experience the world? And how do we really live with pluralism? Right. Mm-hmm. This is this big experiment of pluralism. So how do we really embrace that? Let our neighbor allow our neighbor in our own minds to have a different point of view and still be neighborly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as an advocacy organization, you know, this is always the the um, push and pull of kind of bridging bridge building work is 
on the one hand, not everyone is going to kind of agree with the things that we care about or that we are advocating for. Not everyone's going to agree with the way that we're advocating for those things. And, you know, if we just plow ahead without deep listening and consultation, then there's a number of things we might be missing um, that could really enhance our work and could bring more people into that work and make more people feel heard. So one thing I love about FCNL is that we, we work on, we have 13 different legislative priorities. We work on a huge range of things, but um, we determine that through what's called the priorities process, which is a process to engage Quakers from all across the country in discerning what issues FCNL should work on as a Quaker lobby. And there's this whole, you know, deep spirit-led process of taking all of that input, all of that discernment, and then we have a policy committee as part of our governance, um, and we have a large general committee that ultimately discerns and approves the policy change agenda. And all of that to say that we have lots of people who are involved in our work, and there's this balancing act between having expertise of lobbyists and policy experts and weighing the the input and the important expertise of people who live all across the country. And I think that that's one way that in my work that I try to balance sort of everyone's going to have their own views and their own approaches. And we can also create something together. You know, it's just being clear about which parts are really co-created in our work and, and which parts are, you know, are we kind of doing in different subgroups or doing on our own? I like that. You know, I was just thinking of a individual's experience of whether it be in the work environment or larger social political issues, thinking about our own self, because sometimes it can just feel very overwhelming, the the issues in the world, the issues at work that many people face. And you could take a sort of like a, a mini approach to that and say, okay, what exactly is going on? What is bothering me? What What are my priorities? And I think that's a wonderful way personally forward because sometimes we can just feel swamped. We can feel like this is not working or feel really terrible, but we're not exactly sure where that like general anxiety or general terribleness is coming from. And I'm a huge advocate for taking time to reflect and really figure out and articulate what exactly is the problem? How do I feel about this problem? Why is this a problem? You know, why is this occurring? Why, why is something else not occurring? Mm -hmm. And the clearer that we get, I think sometimes people say, well, my boss, Mary, is just so terrible or these coworkers. And if you could stop and say, okay, well, these are the specific behaviors that are happening and this is what's going on in the organization. And then, as you said, maybe make an agenda and mm -hmm. say, okay, this, these are the issues, but let's go ahead and, you know, you dismantle something one piece at a time. So what am I going to focus on mm -hmm. and make headway? And what's, what is the next thing? But it can be very overwhelming when I think, I have to have a stance on all of these issues, or I have to be moving the needle in some significant way. And and so people get overwhelmed and they just don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And that's, I find that's true in so many, on so many levels, right? Like that we, we work with people who are, feel very stuck when they think about how to change the different policies that affect our lives, whether that's around migration and asylum seekers, whether that's around 
uh, violence against uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, whether that's around the war in Yemen or what's happening right now in Palestine and Israel. Um, so there are a number of times where I see the same approach that we probably take within our office setting to supporting people around the country who want to make their voices heard and who feel paralyzed by the state of the world and who are saying, you know, feel totally overwhelmed and like also will anything I do make a difference on the world around me um, and trying to provide some of the tools and the knowledge, the kind of civic education for folks to see here are some of the actions I can take that might influence my legislators, but here's also a way that I can do it to feel most effective and to stay to stay in my values, like to kind of stay grounded in the way I want to treat other people, the way I want to talk to other people, you know, what we would kind of think of as relationship building. But I think the same is true with your colleagues. Like, I think, again, I think people are people are people. And so if we are trying to approach, you know, a frustrating situation at work or something overwhelming, you know, I think, yeah, the most, that, the more that you can hone in on the pieces of it that are within your control and the pieces of it that are the highest priority and figure out what is a lower priority or what's not in your control. And that's kind of how I try to separate things out so that I can focus on what what's most important and what do I have control over? <laughs> well, given your line of work, I so I certainly get overwhelmed when I think about all the evil and, and the destruction in the world. It's very, uh, it does have this ability just to shut me down. Yeah. And so in the kind of work that you're in, you are, you see all of this devastation across the world. So what do you do or what do your colleagues do to you know, promote self-care so that mm -hmm. you can be effective and not just be, just be overwhelmed and wrought by destruction? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think everyone kind of has their own process or practices for this. I'd say at our workplace, we've got a lot of different uh, resources or different things that staff can take advantage of for self-care. And I think that's been important for the past several years, just because the world has kind of felt like it's on fire, you know, and I think that may not be something that's going to end soon, or it may not be limited to our time, but I know the pandemic and the the murder of George Floyd and the some of the many different conflicts, the war in Ukraine, um, there's just so many different things that have been uh, challenging that the withdrawal from Afghanistan that where like staff have just really needed more support and and more space to be able to process any especially any kind of personal connections they have to these conflicts some folks have family members who are affected by uh, different violence that's you know taking place in the world or other things like that so we have for example like wellness hours on Fridays we have early outs during the summer we have I don't know different things like yoga and other stuff like that that staff can partake in. We also have affinity groups, which I think is important as a broader kind of wellness uh, space so that staff can connect with others who have a shared identity and can process things that might be affecting them uniquely. And uh, there's probably many other things, but um, we have a good health insurance plan to get access to therapy. That's always good mental health care. And I would also just say that, you know, since the pandemic began, we have a much more flexible kind of hybrid remote staff culture. And I found that personally to be really good for my mental health. Not everyone likes to work from home. And so there's the opportunity to work from the office, but, you know, I like to be at home a lot of the time and to be able to, you know, I like to hang out with my dog and uh, things like that, which weren't possible before. But I do think that having flexibility, especially when you work with issues that can be 
very emotionally challenging and kind of fast paced. It's good to have a workplace where you can hold that space for the way that the events in the news affect people differently in a personal, a personal way. I think flexibility again is so key in so far as whoever's working with there's people process, as you said, things in different ways. And so having a variety of mental health options for people. And I'm so glad that in the past five years or so, mental health is on the rise as an importance for employers because, I mean, it just makes, I mean, bottom line sense, right? It just is a return on investment. If you have workers that are healthier in, in their in their minds and their bodies, then they're going to be more engaged and they'll be more productive and creative, so on and so forth. So just from a dollar sense, let alone a, a moral imperative to treat people well, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a, a very positive development in the consciousness of a lot of employers. Not, not every employer, but... Uh, as we, I mean, the world of work is changing and it will continue to change. And what we needed work to do maybe 50 or 100 years ago is different than it was 300 years ago. And so really understanding the workforce today and the resources and the seeing about talking about our mental health as not shameful, but actually quite brave and to be envied that somebody is taking their mental health seriously. I always, I always think, wow, what a, what a brave person. I love when I see people talking about what they're doing to be more resilient and to deal with whatever issues they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's become much less stigmatized. It feels like Especially, I would say for to give a shout out to like the younger staff who are joining our organization and like the Zillennials, Gen Z, I think there's just so much less stigma I encounter with my colleagues and staff who are kind of newer to the workforce that it seems like totally obvious to them that totally secondhand, second nature that 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 should be an integral um you know, a, a part of, you know, a, a very normal thing to take some mental health time, take your sick leave a little bit as mental health time to talk about therapy, to just be open about it, destigmatize it. I found that that's um, hugely refreshing. Yeah. I love that. Totally obvious <laughs> yeah. I, because I just think it, it is obvious to yeah. me. And yet I was raised uh, in the eighties and the idea that, you know, it was, it was shameful for many people to admit, or, you know, if you get counseling, are they going to mess with your mind, you know? And uh, it's a, I think a wonderful development that we are being more open and, and that the younger generation does think it's obvious like you, you know, that it's obvious that we ought to embrace that. So Sarah, when you think about the different places that you've worked and the people you've worked with, what is the best experience you've ever had with a colleague or a boss and what resonated with you? What was so good about it? Um, it's a good question. I, one of the things that I have really enjoyed at my current workplace is the kind of collaboration that we have on my team and, and generally with some of my coworkers um, who I've worked with now, I've got a group of coworkers who I've worked with for like five years, all of us together. And um, I've noticed how from like the first year that we all worked together to now, 
there's so many external things that you can't control that are sort of or organizationally, you know, across the organization. But in working with each other, I found that it's gone from, you know, facing a lot of different miscommunications and challenges early on to it being very easy to work together just because we we know each other, like we trust each other. Um, there's shorthand, just like in any relationship, you only get into it when you really need to. And, and most of the time you're able to brush things off and move past misunderstandings just because you have a really good foundation of trust. And um, I'm trying to think of something specific, but a number of times that we've put on kind of like fly-in events in Washington, DC, usually this is connected to a lobby day, connected to a piece of legislation, hosting, you know, hundreds of people from around the country. And I would say for me, just working with the same coworkers for years and putting those events on has felt, um, especially going through the pandemic, now we're doing them in person again, we're still navigating different challenges around, you know, vendors and hybrid format for attendees and things like that. But I would just say that putting on events together where you can both um, see the creativity of your coworkers coming through and know that you had to overcome different misunderstandings or conflicts to put together a massive event. And also then seeing the experience that you've curated for other people who are coming there for the first time and meeting each other. To me, that's always extremely rewarding. And I, you know, we have one coming up in a couple of weeks, so it's been on my mind, just how impactful that can feel. You know, to, to get that trust and that kind of shorthand that you talk about takes relationship building, right? As you said, when you first come in, you don't have that. You don't know these people. You don't know their skills, their strengths, the, what they're not as good at. And you have to build relationships to be where you are five years later. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it really helps that you have these foundational mission and vision and beliefs about seeing the good in others. And that just is a a reframing or for some people a reframing of how I take other people's behavior or how I even interpret what is going on. So did it just sort of happen organically with this group or, or how, how did this really, how did you get here five years later? All right. So there was a point where a couple of years ago, where I felt that some of my coworkers and I, we were kind of misunderstanding each other. There was siloing. So we had these different programs and it kind of felt like they didn't talk to each other. And it felt like there was competition between the programs, which you never really want in grassroots work. Like it should all be building in the same direction, you know, um, uplifting each other's work and and not feeling like you're kind of all yeah, in some sort of vague competition. And one of the things that I noticed was that I thought a lot of that conflict was coming from maybe misunderstandings from not uh, from making assumptions or from like kind of a scarcity mindset that, you know, we're trying to mobilize people in the grassroots, but um, there's never as many people as you want to be pouring in the door to take action. So you kind of think, well, we've got five people who we think would take an action at a higher level with their member of Congress. Should we ask them to take this urgent action or this urgent action or this urgent? You have to kind of pick between these, you know, that people don't always have the time to do every single action that you're going to ask them to take. So we kind of felt, it felt, I don't know, tense or hard to, to maneuver, like we were always bumping up against this thing. And um, so I suggested that we create like a working group the, where we pulled out just a couple of folks who were working with 
these very specific advocacy programs where we were the ones who might potentially feel like we were in competition. And we started having maybe every two weeks or three weeks, just meetings where it would just be us. And we would just use that as a chance to talk about some of the different requests we had for the grassroots network, some of the different challenges we might be facing. Um, originally, part of the idea of it was that we were all people who traveled. And so two of us might be going to Dallas the same week, but we wouldn't have noticed because we weren't talking to each other well enough. There was no system for that. And if we're both going to Dallas, you know, why don't we link up and do something together? We're on the same team. You know, we might as well collaborate. And so we started having those conversations and that led to a much broader series of discussions about how people come into our grassroots work, what are some of the missing pieces and what are some of the needs that we're all struggling to address, which again, it had this sense of scarcity. So we need to have more um, like recruitment and more, more uh, strategies to bring new people into our email list, into, to our events, to our newsletter, so that there would be more people in general just learning about our work so that we could then try to mobilize them for higher level actions. All that to say, by kind of identifying a few people who really had probably a shared stake in that challenge with me that like, we were all trying to do this good work and there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to figure it out, but we just didn't have a system or a structure to communicate to each other. We basically just started setting up a lot more time to talk. And at the beginning it felt like, you know, no one had time for it and should we reschedule and this and that. But ultimately I think we had the right people in the room and we made the time for it and it's made the next three or four years, just uh, very smooth because now we can work together like that, you know, like it's just easy because we understand each other's work and um, we can anticipate some of the challenges that might come up and we can advocate for each other's kind of interests to put it that way that I like Bobby, who I co-facilitated this workshop with, I understand a lot of Bobby's work and he understands a lot of my work. And so when we're talking in different settings, we can really try to advocate for the broader needs of programs like ours, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. When communication breaks down, sometimes we just say, oh, that's, you know, the other person cares about their project and they just want to have everything go in their direction and they're not listening to me. And it goes back to what you said, noticing, taking stock and saying, okay, we can work this out. You know, we can find a path forward. And the path forward wasn't, you got together and everything was fine. As you said, it was, you still had to intentionally work at it. Okay. Are we really going to find the time? And then you found the time and you have had years now of benefit from this real level of communication. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great illustration because so many people say, oh, you certainly are not advocating for more meetings. (laughs) And what I did not hear from you was more meetings. I mean, that meetings have such a bad rep because most meetings could be an email. Most meetings are not structured for what you're talking about. You're Mm -hmm. talking about relationship building, really sharing with each other, brainstorming, moving forward, not these little tick, 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 tick things that are just wasting people's time. And so when you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, I want to be in a relationship like that. I want to be really iron sharpening iron, getting better ideas, better together. And, but we only get that through noticing and then doing something about it. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I think, I think that that's the difference, just like you put it there between relationship building and, 
yeah, meetings, kind of endless meetings. I actually find, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but I find that like the fewer people in the meeting, the more we can get done. I think that that, I think maybe that's obvious, but it feels somehow anti-collaborative to me sometimes to not have as many cooks in the kitchen. But when you think about actually getting projects done, you know, if you have 15 people on a Zoom call, I often find it's pretty silent. People are able to hide, you know, they turn their camera off. That makes sense. I do that too. And if it's two or three people on a Zoom call, you actually have to engage and you're a little more comfortable speaking off the record and things like that. And so what I find is that at least, you know, in my experience, if you can have enough trust um, held broadly enough across different coworker relationships, across different departments, then you don't need everybody in the room because I have colleagues of mine who say, as long as you're in the room, I feel okay because, you know, you and I talk enough or we we understand each other enough that, you know, if you have eyes on it, then I have a better sense that it's going to come out with a good resolution. Or there are times where people have approached me and said, you know, who, who was in the room for this decision? Like, I really wish that I had been consulted. And that's a good reminder for me to make sure that I'm building enough trust that I can check in with folks to say, I want you to be consulted. I don't want to add more meetings to your calendar. You know, is there someone else that we could bring in on this to make sure that they're able to raise some of the concerns that you might flag? Or, you know, can you and I have a little pre-check-in to see what those concerns might be so I can represent them? And I think that that's why for me, a lot of it goes back to trust building. And there are cases where I've tried to build more trust or kind of deeper relationship where it hasn't felt as effective maybe in like becoming, again, it doesn't have to be about everyone being friends or you know, socially kind of hanging out. But I do think that getting to know somebody better can help you understand what is driving them, what's motivating them. So it may be that in order to move a project forward, someone might be concerned about budget where I wouldn't think that they're concerned about budget. I might think that they're concerned about that they don't like the idea or that they're not respecting my vision for something or whatever, you know, your mind can go in all these different places. And sometimes getting more context and getting to know what that person's influenced by or something that can help figure out a way forward, even if it's not possible to always build a huge amount of trust with everyone at your workplace, you can still understand what might be driving their decisions or their concerns. Absolutely. I was watching a video on your website and you were talking about the work that you do and you said this belief that anyone can change. Yeah. I I really love that because many times we do tell ourselves stories and the fact of the matter is we are all people on the way. We are all in progress. And so I might not value what you value right now, but that could change. There's more likely it will change if I feel like you care about me and that you see me and you haven't written me off because I think we should spend our money or direction this way and you want to go another way. And so now we are adversaries Mm -hmm. for these scarcity of resources. Mm -hmm. But this belief that an acceptance of this is where this person is right now. And we're not in the same spot, but that's not set. Nobody is set. We are constantly changing and that person might change or I might shift given the nature of our relationship. And I think that is really important to hold on to so that we refrain from villainizing the other person because we really usually don't know what's actually going on with the other person in their private life or their past work experiences. Yeah, and I think that um, that's one of the 
Quaker kind of principles that I also really love, although I don't, I'm not as like steeped in Quaker scripture and Quaker or Quaker readings as, as some of my other colleagues, but this idea of what's called like continuing revelation that you can always be open to a new understanding of like a message that you might be receiving from the divine, or, you know, there's more secular interpretations of that, but basically the way that I think about that. Yeah. And my work, my work at FCNL and in my relationships is the possibility that I could be wrong or the possibility that I could change. And again, that's challenging in advocacy because you don't want to be wrong and you, you have, you know, there, it's a little black and white We're we're pro this and we're anti this. And um, I also think there are, I think things are much more gray than they seem, you know, everything is many things are, there's much more room, I should say, for that in-between space. And it's uncomfortable to be in that in-between space. I think FCNL as an organization often exists in that in-between space because we try to do, we're a nonpartisan faith-based federal policy lobby, which is like a very in-between space. So we try, to, we try to work with legislators across the aisle. We work on foreign and domestic policy and everything kind of that crosses over between foreign and domestic we work on a huge range of issues and sometimes we partner with groups or individuals who we don't align with a lot of their values, but um, we're still trying to find way forward and trying to stay in relationship with them. And I think, I think being open to changing your mind is important to be able to go into this kind of work in a way that is authentic and humble and not seeing it as I have the right answer and I'm going to, I'm going to try to sneakily get everyone else to do what I want them to do without them realizing that that's what I'm doing or something right. like it's not just a strategy. It's not just a manipulation. You can both care about a certain objective or a certain goal and authentically want to understand the other person sitting across the table. Those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I love that you said that because I was thinking about the other can change, but certainly I can change, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the first ways forward with any relationship is humility, right? Mm -hmm. That I I can change. I may not have all the answers. I'm sure there are some things I believe right now that I will change in the future. I don't know what those are or else I would change them now, but that possibility that I, I can learn and grow and I should learn and grow as I go through my relationships. So Sarah, the last question I have for you is a question I'd like to end on, which is when you think about the future of work and think about developing spaces so that not only are people treated with dignity and respect, but they are encouraged to thrive and flourish. What do you think needs to shift in work in general so that that happens? I think a lot of this has to do with uh, for me, having a strong understanding of the the values that are prioritized and held at your workplace and um, by members of your leadership team and being clear about those values when you're hiring new staff. I think bringing people into something where they know kind of what they're signing up for. And um, I never want to bury the lead when we're hiring an FCNL to say, we talk to Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and we want to try to build relationships with all of them. And if that's if that's something that's really off-putting for someone, that's their right. But I want them to know that because that's, you know, that's something that we hold true at FCNL. And um, so I think being clear about your values, having a leadership team that can support 
maintaining that kind of integrity of those values in the workplace and working to create a culture where staff feel empowered to raise concerns where the leadership and the staff are all also kind of living into that idea of we could we could be wrong or we could change our minds and how can we have enough openness to hear each other out when something's not working so we can adjust accordingly or we can at least know that that people in our community are feeling this way so yeah i think it, it comes back to those same core tenets of deep listening and relationship and humility and respect that's wonderful sarah thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute joy speaking with you thank you so much for having me and uh, i appreciate the work that you're doing it's great to be on the podcast thank you so much sarah thank you so much for being on conflict managed and thank you for the nonpartisan work you do on behalf of justice and peace in the world. Many times people, myself included, feel a sense of hopelessness when you look at all of the tragedy going on around us. But I'm so encouraged to see how you act and empower others to act for the good of all. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. If you haven't had a chance to check out my new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, it's a book that examines 80 tips of what not to do at work in order to start thinking about how do we have a healthy work culture. Please come back. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to see interviewed, reach out to us. You can email us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember... Conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.